right, so let me give you the setting of where we're at here in John chapter 6. When we began our study of John chapter 6, the crowds were wildly following Jesus. They were so excited to follow Jesus. They had seen his miracles. They were hearing him speak things that nobody else um, had the right to say. He was speaking with authority. They followed him gladly. John chapter 6, verse 2, the chapter starts out where it says, Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. You have a great multitude following Jesus. They had been so into him that they were about to take him by force and make him their king. It begins with Jesus being respected. This chapter begins with Jesus being wanted, with Jesus being followed. They followed him all over the countryside. They followed him day and night. They followed him to the point to where they were even hungry. What a reception. What honor and respect. That's the way this chapter starts. But today we begin to look at how the chapter ends. It starts with multitudes in wild excitement. And it ends in John 6, 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. What a difference. What a shift and a change. There was the multitude and they would follow him. They wanted all the blessings that that following with Jesus brought with it all the blessings without making any real commitment though that's what the multitude was like they would follow him as long as it was convenient so long as the good stuff kept coming they'd keep coming too so long as there was the hope that Every single day we'll be happy, healthy, and wealthy. We're there as long as you give me a pep talk. As long as you make me feel good about me, then I'll be there for you. (laughs) Actually, I'll be there for me (laughs) with you. (laughs) Come to Jesus and you'll have mountaintop experiences. Come to Jesus and life will be easy. Come to Jesus and there'll be no problems or difficulties. And even today, so many promise those things. But that's not what a life with Jesus looks like. As long as you read the scripture, I mean, sure, people will present a walk with Jesus that looks like that, but they do it by pulling out a very few verses. But if you look at the verses that they're pulling out, you also notice that they're pulling those verses out of their context in order to say such things. When trials come, when troubles come and turmoils, when difficulty comes, the multitude goes. And so many, even today, they walk away. I was... When over in Kauai, I met up with an old friend of mine. We've been friends for over 20 years. He went with me to South Africa when we helped plant the church down there. He was part of the church planting team. 
and now he's serving over in Calvary Chapel, Lehui. And uh, he's, he's just, it's a blessing to hang out with him. And while I was hanging out with him, we were talking about a lot of our old friends, people that we knew from Bible college, that at the time, they seemed like they were real standouts. And name after name, oh, what about this person? Oh, like they, they walked away from the Lord. They're living like crazy now. All of these sad stories. And every now and then, well, what about this guy? Oh, they're doing great. They're loving Jesus. And, you know, being a, they're, they're faithful to their family. And it's like, wow, how exciting to hear. So when we're living in a day where so many are walking away and so few remain and grow and, you know, really commit, what's the difference? Why are people being offended? Why are they walking away? And for those that stay, because I want to be one that stays, and I hope you do too, then like, what does it take? So from that, look with me in verse 60 to 64. It says, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this. He said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Why were they complaining? It says here, when they heard this, they began to complain. This is a hard saying. Who can understand this? They were complaining because Jesus was giving them hard sayings. And what were these hard sayings? I believe in Jesus' response here in verse 61 to 64 that he hints at three different things that he has said during his discourse there in the synagogue of Capernaum here in John 6. He hints at these three things. One, in verse 62, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? In verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. And then also there in verse 63, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So those three things. The first one. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Remember back in verse 41 and 42? The Jews then complained about him. Because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? That statement that I have come down from heaven, that offended them. They got all messed up over that. They understood Jesus, the boy who was growing up in Nazareth, and now there he is living in Capernaum. 
They understood. They knew, they knew Mary. They knew Joseph. They knew that. But now he's saying, I've come down from heaven. If you would say, I came down the street. Yeah, I got that. But no, you said something different. You're saying that you come from heaven. And they were offended by that. Offended because he spoke truth about himself. They were offended because they had no room for that truth because of all of their presumptions. The offense was very similar to the offense that happened the day that Stephen was being stoned to death in Acts 7. Uh, not that one, this one. Acts 7, 55 through 57. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. That statement just threw them over the edge. Look, there's Jesus standing at the right hand of the majesty on high. What? Oh! And they're charging to throw rocks at him until he dies. That's how upset that statement made them. But you know what? That statement, when he ascends to where he came from, that's part of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. The Bible tells us in John 16, verse 8 through 11, when he has come, the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father. Look at that. Of righteousness because I go to my Father. And you see me no more. And of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. If they were offended by the truth, if they were, you know, they're, they're offended, so offended by the truth that they denied it. Imagine how offended they're going to be when they realize that what they were denying about him was true. Right? They were so offended by that truth that they denied it, but when they realize that it's true, Imagine how offended they're going to be when they stand before him in judgment. That they would be offended, not at him, but offended at themselves. At how stupid that they would have been. That they ignored all of the signs. All the miracles. That they ignored all the prophecies. The, the entire symphony of witness that was pointing to Jesus as truly being the one who has come from God. And that in all of their presumptions, that they would reject Him and deny Him. And now they stand face to face being judged by the one that they rejected. They'll be offended at themselves. And because of their presumptions, kept from His heavenly glory. The next thing that he mentions in terms of addressing their offense, 
He says it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And remember when they asked him there in John 6, verse 28 and 29, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Now let me tell you something. Faith alone is a stumbling block. This idea of, of, of righteousness by faith is a stumbling block. They want something to do in order to justify themselves. They want something to do in order to be made righteous. Tell us the works so that we can work them and thereby have rightness in the sight of God. You want the work? Do you need to work it? Believe in him whom he sent. Romans 9, 30 through 33 says, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So on the one hand, there's the Gentiles, and they're not out seeking to do the things of the law, but yet they find righteousness because they're finding it by trusting in Jesus. And yet you have the, the Jews who are out there and they have the law and they keep going to the law trying to, by the law, make themselves right in the sight of God. And then at the end of the day, they're not right in the sight of God. Why? Because they're not trusting in Jesus. They're trusting in them. They're trusting in their own works. They're trusting in their flesh. So you're either going to be trusting in Jesus Believing on him whom he sent, the spirit giving life, or you're going to be trusting in the flesh, and the flesh, the flesh profits nothing. Why has this happened? Because they did not seek it by faith. Faith is the stumbling block. And just like those who follow Jesus in John 6, when he says, this is the work of God, believe. What? And just like the Jews that Paul was addressing in Romans, people even today, they stumble over the cross. Why? Because the cross undermines any shot that you might have of self-righteousness. The cross shows us that you are not righteous. Not one of you is righteous. And that's why Christ, the Savior, was crucified for us all. The cross is the proof that you can't save yourself. But that you need to humble yourself in order to receive his salvation. God says that there's a way that you can know 
whether you're being drawn by the Spirit towards salvation or whether he's just letting you stay put in your lost condition and just stay condemned. And the way you can know that is by what you're doing with Jesus. It's like God has set Jesus before you as like a big old rock right there in your path. And if you were to walk down a path and you were to come to like some big old flat rock that is kind of like laid over a ravine, there's two things you can do when you come to that rock. You can either stumble over it or you can stand on it. I know that sounds silly. That's basically what Paul says here, right? He's like, there's a rock of offense that's in their way. And instead of actually standing on the rock, instead of finding stability on their rock, instead of building their life on the rock, they're just tripping on it. They spend all their life just tripping on the rock rather than trusting in him. So you can either stumble over it or you can stand on it, one or the other. That's what God says. The Jews, they want to work out their own salvation on the basis of their own behavior, their own good works before God. And what do they do? They stumble over that stone. That's why they rejected Jesus then, and that's why so many reject Jesus even to this day. They don't want to admit that they need a Savior. They think that they can, by following the list, can save themselves. They won't admit that they'd never be able to save themselves. But for those that see that they need a Savior, just being able to see that shows that you're being drawn by God. Just being, having your eyes opened, it shows that God is at work. And when they accept Jesus, they stand on that stone. Like it said there, we looked at it in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. That there's been this drawing by God. Like God is at work. What work must we do to work the works of God? Well, actually, let me tell you about the works of God. God is drawing you to show you your need of a Savior and that you would put your trust in Jesus. You want to see the works of God? If you're saved, you can look at it and say, that's the work of God. (laughs) Believe on him whom he sent. God's been working. And all that my Father has given me, as he says there in John 6, 37, will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And they're tripping on that. Because no, like, I want to work the works of God. So what's left for us? Well, If God is opening your eyes, if God is showing you your need, there has to come to that point of reckoning where you have to say, like, I'm a broken person. I'm not what I pretend to be. I need Jesus to save me because I cannot save myself. You need to believe on him whom he sent. The Spirit gives life. And all your best works, they amount to nothing. 
Uh, I love this quote uh, by John Piper. It says, if you want God's favor, there are two ways to relate to him. You can relate to him as an heir, or you can relate to him as a slave. The difference is that a slave tries to become acceptable to his master by presenting him valuable service. But the heir trusts that the inheritance of his father is his by virtue of a will that was drawn up without his earning it at all. A slave is never quite sure he has done enough to please his master and win an honorable standing in the house. A son rests in the standing he has by virtue of his birth and the covenant his father made in his will to bless his children. It's the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And the other thing that tripped them out that Jesus addresses, he says, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. You see, Jesus had already been giving them these very hard sayings. And the last straw that like threw them into this frenzy of murmuring was when he said there in John 6, 52 and 53, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so from that, we get to verse 65. And there in verse 65, and he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And from that time, many of his disciples, they went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did not I choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So this section here, it wraps up, with a, with a peek into Jesus' insight into Judas Iscariot. A man who, even though he was with Jesus, he walked with Jesus, his heart was already tending towards that satanic selfishness. But what you see here as well is you see these disciples who were part of this multitude who decide to walk away and walk with Jesus no more. Because they're offended. They don't understand how, you know, they're offended by the fact that he came down from heaven. They're, uh, they're um, offended by this idea that, like, they can't improve upon what God is doing. Like, if God has done it, he brought the perfect mix. And they're mad because they can't add to it. I just suddenly remembered, you know why they, they used to make cake mix? where all you had to do is add water. And then people kept trying to add stuff to it. And so they realized that they could sell more cake mix if they made it to where you could add an egg. 
And so the reason that you add an egg to the box cake mix is because people feel like, oh, I'm doing my part. Even though they were making it to where it's like, you don't even need to add the egg. Just add the water, you're done. Like, How can I make this fancier? And uh, yeah, so they're like, ah, let's make it to where they can do something to the cake and then they'll like it better. We always think that we can add. But if it's already perfect and then you add to perfect, you know what you do? You make it less perfect. They were offended. They were offended by his teaching. And so they left. There's multitudes. There's always multitudes. But then there's those true disciples that stay. True disciples that remain. True disciples that have that deep and growing relationship with Jesus. Not just Jesus our Savior, but Jesus our Lord. As soon as the multitude faced the social awkwardness of being identified as one of Jesus' followers, they're gone. As soon as the teachings got a little pointed, a little more difficult, they're gone. They took off. So what does it mean to truly be his disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? When I say the word disciple, I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm talking about your relationship with the Lord. Jesus as Lord. As your teacher. Your master. Your boss even. The one who has the absolute right to tell you what to do. Right? Somebody on the street, they come up to you and they tell you what to do and you know what you say? Who do you think you are? But if Jesus tells you what to do, if you're his disciple, you just say, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, Lord. When I think back to these early disciples, man, they, they had a special relationship with Jesus, didn't they? It was personal. It was intimate. It was in knowledge. Like, they lived with him. They spent time with him. They knew him. They knew his ways. They knew his works. It was in love. They were submitted to him. They were obedient to him. And he asked them to do some pretty crazy things, right? We just saw it in this chapter, feeding 5,000 and he tells them, you do it. You feed him. <laughs> um, uh, Lord, can you recount? Uh, the numbers don't add up there, Lord. Think of Andrew and Peter, how they worked together. How James and John, they were partners with their father in their own fishing business. It tells, you, it tells us in Matthew 4, verse 8, 18 and through 22. And Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw other brothers, two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, 
mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So here you got these guys, they're following Jesus. He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And right away, that shows that. This is the work of God. Believe on him and we sent. He just says, you just follow me, and the work of making you a fisher of men, that's mine. I will work that work. You just follow me. I love that. That's, that is full-on new covenant right there. That is God at work in his people, making his people what they couldn't be on their own. They're just, okay, follow you, you know, follow me. And right away, they're leaving their boat. They're leaving their father. They're following him. They are trusting in Jesus. It tells us in Matthew chapter 5, when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, where it's kind of like the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. Like This describes the life of disciples. And the multitudes had been following Jesus. They'd been following him wildly. And in Matthew 5, verse 1 and 2, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then you have the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when people persecute you. Like all of the the blesseds. And then you've heard that it's been said, but I say to you, and that is the life of the, the disciple. But notice, it's not a message to the multitudes. He saw the multitudes. He left them. The disciples came, and he opened his mouth and taught them. There's always multitudes, but disciples are different. Multitudes are willing to attend teachings. They're willing to listen to what's taught. They'll keep listening to what's taught. They'll keep hearing, but they're never going to make a decision. They're never going to make a commitment. They're just like, hey, it's fun to listen to. There's no commitment to these guys. And this morning, I'll tell you that there's so many who are willing to go and fill churches so long as it's a me-centered message. They'll sing songs as long as they're me-centered songs. That's not discipleship. It's not discipleship. That's exalting yourself and using Jesus to do it. That's promoting yourself and using Jesus to do it. That's making you the center of all theology and God works for you to make you what you want to be. And let me tell you, God is not your amplifier. You were called to magnify him. We'll get back to that in a minute. But I will say this. Oh, man, a man-centered Christianity is why we are so weak and so, like, spiritually anemic in the world today. Because it's all about fulfilling our desires, our will. We want our happy messages. As soon as it gets tough, as soon as it comes to commitment, we're gone. 
Disciples aren't those that are just curious about what Jesus might say. They're those that no matter what he says, even if it's hard and even if they don't fully understand it, they want to be taught by him and they want to do what he says. So what's a disciple? Someone who is taught by Jesus and wants to do what he says. Even if they don't fully understand it. But there's benefits to being a disciple. I feel like I'm an infomercial now. But the benefits are, let me sign you up. Um, the benefits of a disciple, okay, it, now I'm about to show you a couple of verses. Please know that I bolded them and I put numbers in them to show kind of points. Um, the points are not the scripture. I figure you get that. Matthew 3, 13 through 15. And he went up on the mountain and called to him um, those he himself wanted. And they came to him and he appointed 12 that they might, one, be with him. Two, that he might send them out to preach. And three, to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Talk about the benefits of a disciple. The first one right there, to be with him. You know what a disciple gets? A disciple gets a greater relationship with Jesus. There were 5,000 that were fed in John chapter 6, but there were only 500 that saw him in his resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And even though there was 500 that saw him in his resurrection, there was the 12, and among the 12, there was the three, Peter, James, and John, and among the three, and they, you know, they went up Mount Tabor, you know, they, <clears throat> they had some special opportunities. But among the three, there was John the Beloved, who had his head leaning on Jesus' bosom at the, upper, um, at the Last Supper. What separates you from them? Nothing if you're willing to serve him. That's why I love Matthew 12. Uh, I already did that. Matthew 12, verse 48 through 50. But he answered and said unto him that told him, because remember, they, they came to him and they said, uh, they thought he was crazy. Lord, your, your, your brother and your sisters and your mother, they're outside. They're, they're asking for you. And here's his answer. Who is my mother? Who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand towards his disciples. He said, behold, my mother and my brethren. For whoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. That is awesome. What is it? Who's my brother? Who's my mother? How about this? If you do the will of our Father in heaven, brother, sister, mother. Greater relationship. Not only that, greatly useful. Greatly useful. They, they, these guys were participants in the miraculous. Could you imagine that day when at the wedding in Cana of Galilee? When he's like, okay, take the water and bring it to the master of the ceremony. And they're like, okay. And he's like, Wow, this is the best wine. Wow, the miracle happened. And they, they, they got a part in it. What was their part? They just, you know, 
They're not the originator of the miracle. They're just the distributor of it. The Lord did that. Same with the feeding of the 5,000, right? The, the, the secret and the power of multiplication was in Jesus' hand. But they got to be distributors and communicators of the miraculous thing that Jesus was doing. They were right there. Or what about with Peter? When Jesus is walking on the water, Peter's like, ask me to come and I'll come. Come. The disciples got to be participants in the miraculous. The healing of the sick. They, they, They were right there. They were greatly used. And the same is true today. It's disciples of Jesus that are greatly used. And you know what else they get? They get greater revelation. It tells us in Luke chapter 8, verse 9 and 10, then his disciples asked him, saying, what does this parable mean? And he said, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Or in Mark 4, verse 33 and 34, and with many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. So they get this greater revelation. Not only do they get the parable, but they get the explanation of the parable. And don't forget that discipleship, it's not just something that we're called to be. We're not just called to be disciples, but we've been commissioned to make disciples. Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So you have this um, definition of what a disciple is, that somebody is willing to do, to learn from Jesus and do what he says, no matter what he asks, even if they don't fully understand it. There's the benefits of a disciple where you have greater revelation, you have um, greater usefulness, greater relationship. But there's a cost to discipleship. And the cost of discipleship, what's the cost? The cross. Taking up your cross and denying yourself. Luke 14, 27, And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And I got to admit, if you don't spend time actually thinking about what this means, then you're prone to equate, I'm just bearing my cross as having a bad day. How you doing, brother? Oh, I'm just bearing my cross. I didn't get my way like three times today. It's pretty bad. The cross speaks of death. The cross speaks of pain and suffering and torture and rejection. A.W. Tozer used to say, 
that you could always know one thing about a man who was carrying his cross outside of the city. You knew he wasn't coming back. That's the cost of discipleship. It's embracing death with Christ and newness of life only found in Him. That whatever you were is dead and gone. And long live the new man. What a radical statement. What a radical claim that Jesus is making on your life and on mine. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. And yet, why is it that churches are built on a paradigm of, we're here to make you happy. We're here to make you better. To make you successful. To amplify you. In fact, we're going to pull scriptures out that show that you should have all the health and all the happiness and all the money and you should have it now. After all, why shouldn't you? You need to be selfish in your theology. And then you think, oh wow, Jesus loves me like I love me. And so Jesus wants to come alongside of me and help me be more of me for me. And all of it's all about you. And that's meology. <laughs> There's an old joke. Um, and I like this joke because I don't particularly like cats. But you could take a dog and you could bathe it and feed it and give it a roof and, you know, provide good things for it. The dog looks at you and its whole being, its attitude is like, you feed me, you clothe me, you give me all this stuff, you must be God. And a cat, you feed it and you, you give it a place to live and take care of it and it looks at you and goes, you clothe me and you, or you feed me and you give me all this stuff? I must be God. <laughs> Meology is dangerous. You live a Christian experience that's all about you. And all that, that's, that's not discipleship. Job 2 verse 4, Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. And maybe for most, that is true. But that wasn't the case for the early church. That Roman ground was soaked with the blood of the martyrs. They loved not their life to death. They would not deny Jesus. And their blood made for fertile ground for the spread of the gospel. Or ultimately, Rome... This nation that for three centuries was hostile towards Christianity, was peacefully converted to Christianity. Not because they were like making rallies and marches and cruising around with their flags that are like, Team Jesus and stuff like that. Like that didn't convert Rome. Converted Rome was that over and over again, believers 
facing brutal, violent deaths, and in the face of death, still loving and still ministering the gospel even to their executioners. Disciples all the way to the point of death. They offered their lives willingly. And they were already offering themselves daily. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 30 and 31. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Like talk about that. What, what about that for prosperity? He's like, I am in danger every single day. I am suffering every single day. I die daily. He says in Romans 8.36, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And the experience of those in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10.32-34, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Why would they endure all of that? Because they were disciples. See, Jesus says it just a little bit different in Matthew 16, 25. He says, for whoever, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. I want you to not get the wrong idea about this passage. Because if you're looking at this passage and you think that the main, the main word, the key word of this passage is life, then you'll be getting it wrong. The key word in this, look, life is a gift. Life is precious. It's one of the, the most precious things that God has given to you. We're not called to hate life or despise life. Life isn't the key word here. The key word right here is His. Whosoever will save his life. Like, what is your life all about? Like, that's the issue. If today your life is all about you, this is my life. I'm going to do with my life what I want. I'm the captain of my destiny. I'm the master of my own outcome. That is me. And I'm going to do it for me, and I'm going to amplify me, and I'm going to hallelujah me. Because it's all about me. If that's the life you're living, that's the life that the world is teaching you to live, by the way. And that life will always come up empty. You are cutting out for yourself a broken cistern that cannot hold water. That life will always leave you hopeless. All of its promises, and yet it will always leave you hopeless. We live in a society of people that are radically selfish. And they're also radically broken. 
They're not radically satisfied. Uh, this week on Twitter, Elon Musk posted a meme. It was a little picture of like two Godzillas cruising through like a major city with handfuls of people that they were like just pulling up and eating. And the one Godzilla says to the other Godzilla, I feel really strange after eating this. And the other one says, it's no wonder they're full of antidepressants. <laughs> and like, look, I, I'm just saying that, that we live in a very heavily medicated society, but they'll never go to the root of it because the society that we're living in is telling you daily that it's your life do what feels good, do what makes you happy, live in the moment, live for yourself, live for right now. And in the Bible, Jesus says explicitly, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. That's why you keep coming up broken and empty. Because to you, you're trying to save the your part of life. You are not meant to live for yourself. You were meant to live for another. You were meant to live in service to the king. So what is your life? Are you alive to the world and the flesh and the self? And in doing so, have you finally gotten to a place where you're sick of all the weakness and all the failure? It's like Leonard Ravenhill said, I pray that many of you have come to your own funeral today where you die to all the weakness and all the failure and you, you know, are, are you trying to save your life? Or by losing your life, by giving it away, are you truly finding what living is all about? And so when things get hard, and it becomes socially difficult to follow Jesus, to be identified as his, like Jesus asks, will you go away also? The multitudes followed wildly, but as soon as it became socially difficult to be identified as his, they left. They were offended at his teaching. They couldn't. Nope, I'm out. I'm out. Will you go away also? I pray that today your answer is just like Peter's. Where he says there in John 6, 68, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life.